This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eHearNowNetwork.com forward slash David. David Kahn. Hello. Welcome to the CSM podcast. It's so great to uh, be able to talk to you. We talk at length for sometimes, right? We get into all kinds of topics of conversation. Yes. So um, this is going to center around, I guess, the themes in the podcast are coming from the book that I have out called Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck, all of which you've had a taste of in your life, I would think. Yes. Yeah. Had a taste of all those. Which do you think is the strongest thread? The strongest thread? Of those three. What is it? It was creativity. Spirituality. Spirituality. Making a buck. Making a buck. For me? Yeah. Uh, creativity. Yeah. Because it leads to the other two. Right? <laughs> How would you define creativity? Um, hey, I've got an idea. Hmm. Ah, that's it. That was the definition. Well, that's my definition of heaven and hell. Heaven is, hey, I've got an idea. And hell is, hey, you're in my way. Yeah. Wow. That's um, a lot simpler than uh, some other descriptions that I've heard, even <laughs> even some other descriptions that I've given. But <clears throat> while you're on the topic of heaven, the book really starts off with that principle of joining heaven and earth. Uh-huh. So you know that paradigm because you've studied Chinese medicine and so forth and in your time. Yes. So heaven, just we mean the sort of unobstructed quality of of possibilities and the expanse of the mind and the vastness of the the sky and the universe and at a human level just that anything's possible. Uh, and then earth, of course, is I think it's the guy who is in my way. Is I'm not sure I'd call it hell, but it might be more like earth for sure. Um, some kind of obstacles, uh, reckonings, um, things to synchronize, to coordinate, to overcome, 
to integrate, to work around sometimes. So the principle of uh, joining heaven and earth is that you have some kind of great idea and you actually can manifest it and connect heaven and earth. That's, that's yes. supposed to be the role of leaders and leadership and all kinds of things, artists and so forth. Does that resonate with you? Yes. What, what, what is your heaven? What's your idea of um, a kind of expansive and you know, unobstructed situation? What would that be for you? Well, one of them is when I would come to an agreement with an artist that I'm working with, as opposed to my own idea, my own concept. Um, it happens to me by on my own, like when I work on my ballet music or I'm working on a piece of music and I figure something out and it actually sounds better. That's a, a resonant moment. That's resonant the word. Moment. I, that's so, the word. So when I you're use. in sync with the, with what you're trying to create. Yeah, and in music, you're actually creating resonance. So um, an example, it happened to me at the ocean thing I did with Nat National Geographic in the fifth room. There was all sound effects, and I kept changing and changing and changing, moving stuff around, and um, pitch and length, and it, but it was all noise, noises. And they decided they wanted music. And when I went, okay, so I went in and we set up the music, I started working on music in the room, and things gradually sounded better as I moved, and I realized I'd done the sound effects in the key of D. Literally? Yeah. Tone out? Well, because, mm -hmm. yeah, when I would work, I would start, mm -hmm. I, work, I realized in the key of D and that there was some resonance going on, like my ear had found some sort of pitch center with all the sounds yeah. that I was working with. And so when I worked in the key of D, which is the room is in, it, it just I put a little bit in, and the music would work better than if I was any flatter. So heaven is is resonance, yes, and, and kind of um, harmony, balance, and and some the total is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, that's what happens in the resonance. Is this sort of a transcendent kind of feeling? Yes. Yeah, it's like tuning. You know, the well-tempered tuning, and when you hear it, when it's actually the slight non-linear tuning that's actually the most in tune it there's there is a something that happens that's keeps moving and and just that i guess resonance is the word i use for it right. but it's i love it because it's a great term for music so dave one of the kind of interesting things about you to me is that you've had a florid and flourishing career making fabulous hit pop records which is a certain zone, but you also, and people might not know this about you as much, are, let's see, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. Um, well, intellectual actually comes to mind, but also, um, you know, you're into projects that are quite advanced technically, that are advanced uh, in terms of what the, the crossover between sound and music is. You know, you're working on some, some cool projects right now about that. So you have a pretty broad uh, spectrum of, of creative expression. Would you say that's true? Yes, but I think it all comes from the same place because the technology um, is uh, resonant in and of itself. When there's a new instrument, um, it you see new possibilities or there's a new way to edit or 
that's one reason I've kept up with technology because I, it would be like when they put valves on the French horn, that's they were technology. able to play in any key. Mm-hmm. That's tech mm-hmm. or the 808 drum machine. But if you're working on a project like producing a Regina Spector album, and then you go towards you know designing a holographic whale, uh, yeah. you know installation. Is, is that the same, Dave, or a ballet, writing music for a ballet or writing some of the books that you're writing? Is that all you? Is that, is that different parts of you? Is that all just the same you? No, it feels the same. Uh-huh. It's just figuring out the technology of that particular situation. Uh-huh. Like the technology of Regina's voice is different uh-huh. than the technology of Ingrid Michaelson's voice. Mm-hmm. Two beautiful singers. Right. But to figure out how to record it and also how to arrange around it is... Uh, there's things that Regina sounds beautiful on that Ingrid would sound a little dull. Yeah. And did you ever study arranging formally? No, just uh, I got very formal about reading scores of Stravinsky and Prokofiev and Bartok. But how did you even learn how to do that? I, I don't know. I just... You never went to school for music? I studied at some... In- in college, I, stu- uh-huh. I took a four-part writing class that was pretty life-changing to me. Uh, although it was a train ride where I took the book with me yeah. and realized what it was. But you didn't major in music. No, I majored in English. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Here we are. That's people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Right. And I taught English for four years. But you went from that to reading Stravinsky scores? I mean, I don't, I don't... There must have been some kind of tulku, music tulku thing there, if that's true. Well, I studied the theory, so I studied, I was interested in the actual technology of scale building, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in, in studying that, what intervals were, and, and I was looking at notes, and I I couldn't really play onto an instrument, but I, it was just a, learning a different language. And then in the scoring, it was fascinating because... Um, you know, I, I realized looking at a Bartok page and a Bartok score that um, he was actually mixing because he's got a crescendo, decrescendo marking on the French horns, which is a fader move. Uh-huh. And he's had the violas and violins go to harmonics, which is adding 5K and a digital saturator. So he's telling everybody not only what note to play and at what time to play it, mm-hmm. but also how they should play it. And it's it's arranging and mixing all on a page. And it's sort of hit me. Wow. Um, so really what, what I'm, I think I'm hearing you say is it's kind of all the same in a way. The same principles are operating through everything that you do? Yes. Yeah. You're not really thinking, oh, now I'm over here doing pop music and now I'm over here doing Bartok or something like that. It just has the same energetic to it? Yes. It's the same notes. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, if I record a drummer, I'm going to have a different situation as far as the arrangement goes with the kick drum than if I recorded it on an old MPC with a sample set in it. So the kick drum, the bottom would be different. And how do you make that work? So in terms of your life and, you know, um, manifesting what you hope to and want to manifest, do you feel like you're in heaven right now in terms of your work? 
Like, are you doing exactly what you want to be doing? Is there something you'd rather be doing, something you're not doing that you wish you could be doing? Are you just right in sync with your vision? No, that that's an excursion. I'm, I'm in between uh-huh. most of the time. Like, I guess maybe I'm assuming everyone is. Uh, and you, I go up sometimes when something comes together and when I can't figure something out or somebody screws me over, I, I'm out of it. Uh-huh. And I worked on a on a uh, track for a singer a few months ago, and it was as perfect as I could imagine, and it was beautiful for her voice, and it was going to be her first single. And then I found out her guitar player talked her into taking it off the record and using his version, uh-huh. and he made her paranoid that it was too pop. Uh-huh. Was she a pop singer? She was on that song, and uh-huh. she sounded amazing. Uh-huh. And she's never had a big single. Uh, and she's not even, it's her own label. Uh-huh. And it was a, a miracle to find this one song and fix it. And she loved it for a while. And then he kind of worked his way on her. So I was down. It was a lost opportunity for her. Right. And I was upset because it was a lost opportunity for me right. to help. And and to realize the vision of what yes. I set out to do. And the record came out uh, and didn't have a single and it's sitting there not doing much. I'm not saying that would have saved it, but it was the shot. So, you know, one of the threads, you, you've read the book, so you know this, but one of the threads is that you have sense of vision and then you sort of have an offering that you want to put out there. And then there's a sort of fork in the road between the offering is just what it is. It's just that's what I heard. It's content driven, you know. Yes. And then the other thing is, well, actually, this is going out into a marketplace, and I want to accelerate its activity in the marketplace, which is market driven. And you're operating in both arenas. Yes, I, I'm operating in both arenas. That's why I took the jobs at the record companies. So I. What just, jobs were those, Dave? For people who don't. I, know. I did A&R. So I was A&R, and then head of A&R at Columbia Records, and then I was head of A&R at Warner's, and. I loved bringing, when I would have an artist like Jeff Buckley, mm-hmm. who I brought into Columbia, when they weren't working his record, um, it was doing well in France. And that was like saying this record is over for some reason in the music business. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're doing good in France. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I was able to go to some people and say, why don't we try this? And I went to my boss and he explained why they were saying one thing to him, but doing and not doing. And then he uh, uh, inspired them to uh, work on it in the UK. And uh, I guess inspired is the word. Threatened is another. Okay. <laughs> and they worked it or... Um, I had another artist had a beautiful single uh, that ended up being a number one uh, urban hit, and they weren't working it. And uh, I hired a remixer to do a remix of the record whose father might have happened to have been a radio promoter. And he worked it, and it was number it went to number, uh, they played it on the mix show on Z100 and it blew up. Now, you just shifted modalities. Yes. Seamlessly. I, I kind of <laughs> want to point that out to our listeners out there because 
that's what we're talking about. All of a sudden, we were talking to a kind of uh, pure composer. It didn't sound like there'd be any consequence at all, whether it sold one thing or a million things. That's I'm looking for the resonance. I'm looking for the fulfill fulfillment of the vision that I have. And you just switch personalities. Um, you, 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 you sounded like a kind of seasoned, hardcore business operative. Did you feel that shift? No. So it felt like still that's the same Dave? It's the same person. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. I think maybe an analogy would be I'm in a bar in South Sacramento playing uh, a blues song, and everybody's staring at me. They look like wallpaper. And then I play a Beatles song, and they go, oh, and they like it, and they're listening. So I've marketed myself mm -hmm. to that situation with the proper uh, content. That's that really is how I see it. I I don't want to do. Actually, I'd love to do a goth version of Bartok string quartet, <laughs> but <clears throat> that would be a, something where you would be deciding what is the possibility here. Yeah, and and I think you're always marketing yourself. If I have a song and I take it to an A&R person, mm -hmm. I go, what do you think of this? And they go, oh, no. You know, I want to make sure I'm taking them the right song and that it's in the right form. So how important, you know, there's another um, uh, kind of reference to the, the relationship between success and contentment. Uh, how important is success to you? Which is, uh, Or how would you define it? Let's start there. Success to me would be where what you've created and you feel good about gets across. And I guess that's the business side or the marketing side. Um, if I'm, I'm, I'm working with, uh, there's been a lot of projects I've worked on that haven't gotten across that should have. I feel like they, they were really great and they were never got any traction or resonance in the in the community so that felt unsuccessful uh, and like yes it felt successful as a piece of music right to to such a degree that when it didn't work in the marketplace right. uh for whatever reason uh, a lot of times it's mishandled by the people that are working it and not being at a record company i don't have much control over that right but that the bittersweetness of knowing that it, you've created something very resonant and touching, and yet it didn't get, get over your, yeah. you've got a success on one side and not on the other. So would I be right in saying that success for you is actually creating a vision musically or sonically and creating resonance and transcendence or a particular feeling and then having that be communicatable? communicated to to what a large group of people to the right group of people it could be large it could be i'm thinking of an example the strokes album i produced uh first impressions of earth there was a song in there called um you only live once and i felt that was a crossover song hold a minute dave this is a buddhist podcast Oh, 
Go ahead. He said it tongue in cheek. Okay. So he, I, they had it at the label and something was going on and they didn't work it as a single and they actually tested it. Uh, in my opinion, it was a song that you would get on three stations that were Strokes fans and build up the bass like we did with Walk Like an Egyptian, and you know, which was not getting the attention. And then a station added it, one station, and it blew up. So they were they tested it, and it didn't test well because it's not that kind of a song. Uh, but when it didn't test well, they didn't work it as a single. And over the years since it came out, I've had so many people come to me and say, I love that song. How come it wasn't successful? Blow up. Yeah. 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 Strokes fans. So there's, there's artistically successful and then there's commercially successful. Yes. Right? Those are two adjacent but different things, right? Yes. And am I right in sort of thinking that you like both? Yes. That's the best thing. That's the home run. Is when you get both. It's creatively successful and it's art and, and it's commercially successful. Yes, I mean I've thought about that a lot. Whether or not I'm a poorly um, operating person who should just be able to be so satisfied with something that I've made right. and just leave it at that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and I do have a few things like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I'm on my motorcycle and there's an experience of of being on the motorcycle outside in the Tetons, mm -hmm. and there'll be a moment of of this is right. Yeah, I'm I'm fine of myself. Uh, so that that idea has always fascinated me about what, sharing. Uh -huh. Can I make something? without the urge to share. And when I'm writing uh, in a, for a book or, you know, for something that I'm just pure writing, sure. and I'll, I'll come up with an idea. And I, when I was writing about not sharing and I had a really great idea about it and how you could do that. And as I wrote it, I had this impulse to share it. Uh, to share, they're not sharing. <laughs> yes, this, the, yeah, and that was a a big moment. I don't know. I, I are there people who are so like they're able to do that the, in your experience? Well, the sharing seems to be a profoundly human characteristic. You know, I think we're personally, I think we're social beings, and. Uh, it would be unusual for somebody not to want to share. It would be more, um, more, more unusual. But the dimension of the sharing. So I think uh, if people knew all the different things that you do, like you know, you and I have shared a lot of the sort of more arcane, if you will, or intellectual, or, or kind of um, uh, obviously not commercial things that you you do. You, you know, you're writing books and you're doing some sound projects that I don't think you think those are going to be mainstream things, do you? Or do you? Mainstream, no. Like millions of people going, oh, I no, heard that. No, not, so, not I, for the book. 
books. Yeah, I think you have a whole other side to you that I've been exposed to that probably maybe a lot of people wouldn't know from from the CV. So, but sharing with somebody, sure, even if it's just one person. Uh, so it's an interesting thing. Like for example, when somebody goes into retreat and meditation, mm -hmm. like uh, you know, my teacher Trungpa Rinpoche, his teacher was Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, and he was in a cave for fifteen years by himself. Who are you sharing with? Well, did he share with himself? Is that the well? <laughs> I think you know. I can only imagine. Is there a, a mechanism for that? Is what I'm asking because yeah. I've wondered about that. Yeah. Well, I I was in retreat for a month once, and I can tell you this: at a certain point, I went. You know, you still have your internal dialogue. Yeah. Even though you start to wonder who's talking to who, That's, <laughs> there's a real moment. And then I th I did have this train of thought: like, why am I still chattering? I'm here alone. I n already know everything that I know. I'm not telling myself something new. Um, so it's a rehashing that's kind of going on. But it's very rare that that internal dialogue just dies down. I mean, maybe after a year or something like that, it might get really quiet inside there. Well, I've read in books that studying it that I there's this, a lot of times a goal for that. Um, it seems. That kind of quiescence, you mean? Yes. And the thing about sharing, like when I was writing about not having to share and wanting to share what I wrote about it, um, my feeling was I share, like the sharing and not having a reaction is hurts. That's, mm. that's the... Mm -hmm. My joke for myself is that I'm the worst salesman and I'm preparing for the disappointment because my sales pitch is for, a, say, a song, uh, I'll show it to an artist and my pitch is, you're probably not going to like this. Ah. <laughs> so I'm... So there's a chapter in the book called Never Negotiate Against Yourself. Yes. <laughs> you you pre-negotiate against yourself when you say that. Why would you say that to somebody? Well, it's a thought. I wouldn't yeah. necessarily Oh, you didn't say it. But I, right. I'm – and I don't know if I would call it negotiating against myself because if – I could look at it another way. This is probably going to be rejected. And so I'm just getting over it now. But I'm going to show it to him anyway. <laughs> when I was signed on Capitol, I wrote a song called Rock and Roll is Dead and We Have Killed It. <laughs> this was in 1977. Rock and Roll is Dead and We Have Killed It. Let's throw it in the grave and walk away. The promises were never kept, but still we hear the echoes yet. Remember, you must fear what you believe. Hmm. And it was because I was watching all these bands and I was seeing all the hippie stuff that was idealistic and not happening, coming true. And, oh, yeah. and I showed it to the A&R guy. <laughs> I don't know. But you were an artist at that point? Yeah, I was signed on Capitol. As Dave Kahn or as a band? Well, it or? was uh, one of my high school students. Um, I was uh, started writing songs with him. He was very talented. 
and he looked about five years older than I did. <laughs> so uh, I made my first recordings on a four track and shopped it and we got signed. Wow. We went down to LA and did a showcase and got signed. Hmm. So when I turned that record in for the uh, album and I thought, this is on the edge and it's talking about all of these people that were saying all this stuff about how this is all going to change and it's not changing and a lot of people are doing it out of greed and it was complicated. But the A&R guy gave me the thousand-year stare <laughs> and he just shook his head and went, no, what do you know? Yeah. No. And that was the end. Yeah. <laughs> so that experience was... Well, don't you think creative people have to face a lot of rejection? Just yes. part of the gig, right? Yeah, self-rejection and. Yeah. And um, when you know it's not right, but you don't know why. Yeah. And you keep looking for reasons, and then something comes together, and you're in this moment of, oh, yes. The strange attractor happens, and there's a coalescing of energy. Yeah, there's another chapter called Polishing a Turd. Uh -huh. which uh, I got really from um, Linda Gottlieb, who was the producer of Dirty Dancing, if you remember that movie. Yeah. And she produced uh, the music for One Life to Live when I was doing the score for One Life to Live. And she would just say at a certain point, like, you know, we would keep making edits and additions and layers and key changes, and she would just say, stop polishing a turd. Yes. Yeah, so do, do you think that we all ever get to that point where you just go like, no, this is really, I should just move on from this one? Yes, at the yeah. record companies, uh, I was in charge of the sewage treatment plant. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there was stuff where you'd realize, especially with some artists that had been signed and they'd been working on for a long time or trying to resurrect certain artists and uh, there would be nothing there. Right. But they would be taking up huge resources at uh, the same time. Uh, and so if you're trying to conserve resources and put it towards things that might work, um, that's always a, a, a dialogue that's going on at any business, I assume, at shoe companies. No, we yeah. need the croc purse. Right. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whatever somebody's idea was. <clears throat> so what's interesting <clears throat> is you, you've... Can I tell you one funny one? Sure. Okay. Well, I had worked for a long time to build a website where people could put music up. Uh-huh. And it was for Warner Brothers, but I was doing it in a way that I wanted it to be not corporate. Mm -hmm. And um, I had it almost working. I'd hired somebody to do A&R, but she also turned out to be a really good programmer. And we'd put this site together over a period of four or five months, and they could have street teams for the artists and so on. So I was getting ready to roll it out, and we wanted to keep it on the low. It was cool time. And a new president came in with a bunch of other people. And I talked about the website. That's a great idea. What's it called? Well, we don't have a name for it. Oh, well, let us think about that. Next day, we've got the name for the site. What's it called? Big Ears. 
okay, so I'm dying inside. <laughs> I'm dying inside. <laughs> and I said, you mean like Bugs Bunny? Oh, yeah, this is like sad. Yes. So somebody, somebody. He said yes when you said Bugs Bunny? Yes. <laughs> so there was the moment of the tie-in of yeah. the logo and the thing mm. with the ears. And I, 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 it was darkly humorous, but it was going to ruin the premise of the site. And right. so I dropped the whole thing. We never put it on. You online. couldn't fight for it? No, that was one of the things that led me to say it's time for me to go. And go independent? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was independent for five years between Warners and Columbia. Mm -hmm. so, and just produ producing records independently? Yeah, that's when I did Sugar Ray and Sublime and another Tony Bennett record, a lot of stuff. Yeah. But I, that kind of stuff happens... Um, happened a lot <laughs> when you when you're uh, what i was struck by is like I, I didn't realize you had been an artist yourself which is <clears throat> excuse me interesting point of departure if you ever wanted to go back to that if you ever thought of going back to that to being an artist yeah well as a ballet composer yes yeah but not you, uh, were, you were singing i assume i was I singing and right. after the second record came right. out i was on the freeway in san francisco and i heard the one DJ that happened to play the one song the one time I happened to hear it, myself singing, I pulled over to the side of the road and started crying. Because of happiness? No. No. I'm not good enough. Oh. Okay. So what I hear is singing. Yeah. I know. No, I can't. I'm not that So guy. David, as producer, knew that David, as singer, wasn't cutting the Yes. Grade. And yeah. I decided I'm going to be a producer. Right. And I quit and got a job answering phone in the studio wow. so I could learn how to engineer because in my recording sessions, the engineers were uh, always stopping ideas. You can't do that. Oh. On my second album, I was working at the studio where uh, Weather Report had recorded. So in my recording sessions, the engineers would often say, you can't do that. And I was trying to figure out why. There's a microphone and we're in a, yeah. can't we try it? And he wouldn't let me drag the Rhodes piano into the echo chamber because I wanted to hear the sound of the hammers uh, in the reverb room for one section of the song, and he wouldn't let me pull it in. And wow. another producer experience I had on my first album, we had a producer, and I'd written a line that was played by a clarinet and a flute and a synth, and different notes of the line would be played by different instruments, and when it was done, it would create a full melody. Mm -hmm. and I played the synth line and he I went in the room and listened back to it and he goes that sounds great I said yeah when I get the other notes well no this sounds great it was like do they was do. he the producer yes uh, he from was one of my albums uh, when you were the artist okay yeah yeah and I'm going but see the melody I like it like it is Wow. So it was these random notes. And this was not an abstract downtown New York producer. This was a guy that had done Jose Feliciano. He was not producing John Cage right. back in the day. Right. So every time I would hear those bleep book notes, then the melody was gone. So I decided I'm going to produce and I'm going to learn to engineer so I can engineer all my own stuff. Right. And, and, uh, and that 
And you as a producer, that's the through line, right? You've produced a lot of records, right, over the years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've been in the studio with a variety of artists. Um, I know this is kind of a, like, a cheating question, but could you pick out your top three artists that you work with? Oh, uh -uh. okay. We'd get maybe we'd get you in trouble with the other thirty-five. Yeah, it's, they're, <laughs> they're actually they're unique. Yeah, they're unique each one. experiences. Each one when when they're really I love good. All at, my children equally when they're yeah. re, when they're right. really good artists. Right, like Ingrid Michaelson, her yeah. voice is like silkworms weaving. Uh, okay, it's so beautiful. Yeah, and when Paul sings in his upper register and he goes across his break and you hear that open tone in his falsetto. It's just, oh, I'm hearing this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm experiencing it because when you're recording it, it's a much deeper experience. Well, and you're, he you're helping them shape the musical context of it. Yes. Right, which is a big responsibility for some of these yes. artists, right? It was pretty terrifying sometimes. Or, or with a new artist, I'm working with a new artist who um, her name's Aya, and she, we did a version of My Life by Billy Joel. Did I, I didn't send you that, right? No, I haven't heard that yet. And I did it all orchestral and um, slow in a low key mm -hmm. and a woman singing it. Mm -hmm. And she came in and I asked her if she would try it. I hadn't thought of her singing it. And she went out and sang it and she sang the first line and I got choked up. Mm. It was beautiful. And I played it for people who started crying. Mm. And she um, came in after she was done. I was coaching her through it, shorter words, longer, get louder here. And she came in and she said, I've never been so scared. Mm. And I had no idea that she was that way. That's an example of like when we finished it and she came in and she was shaking and, and the gender change in the tempo, the the lowering of the register brought a, a whole new meaning to it. And and then immediately I wanted to show it to everybody. Right. Well, that I – just so it's clear to the people who are listening, what just happened is you played a track for me here, which because it's a Billy Joel song, we can't really put it on the podcast per se because of the publishing and so forth. But it's my life, right? That famous Billy Joel song, an orchestration by you, all, all uh, with sampled instruments, right? Yes. Uh, and your artist, whose name is Aya Nori, singing it, and it was. Uh, I just have to testify because out there, it's gonna be a while before you're all gonna get to hear it out there. But it's stunning. It's really stunningly beautiful, and kind of perfect in a way. So in terms of the, what you, everything you just said about the resonance and creating the field with the creativity, and I sh now we're at the point of like, how do we get people to hear that? That's, I'm, I'm totally yes. with you on that. For that there to be go. successful, I don't think it's okay for my, I'm the only one who heard it. <laughs> I want it. And in fact, I'm the best person. If you ever want to get other people to hear something, I'm a blabbermouth and you should tell me. If, <laughs> don't tell me stuff if you don't want other people to hear it. But if you want other people to hear it, I'm, I'm, I'm good for that. And that was stunning. And you just—you're right. There's something you want to just so say. I'll go out on the street right now and I'll play it for people. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. take it. I wanted. I sent it to my sync guy. The guy works sync, and I said, "Can you place this?" Even though it's through Universal Publishing, he goes, "Well, they're great with sync." And I said, "But can you?" He says, "I love this. I'll try." 
what happens to that song if you if you uh, don't succeed in that channel? Is there another life for this uh, expression? Like, could you put it up on, do a video of her singing it or something? Or yeah, we could do that because as long as we're not because um, you can cover any song, we just couldn't use it for sync. Right. So we, I could put it up on YouTube, and they would just have to pay the, the royalties. To, yes. to the to the writer. Yeah, I, I th- as a songwriter, if somebody took a song of mine and d- did that to it, I'd be like, you know, extremely, extremely pleased. I, I can only, I, I can only imagine it was really exceptional. And now I want the people who are listening to this to be able to hear this. <laughs> so we'll just have to figure that out another time. And it's a good example when she hit the first line and she didn't know what she was going to do, and I realized it was in the proper key. Right. Uh, for her, the way her breaks work, and right. she hit that first line, and I sat up, and oh, this is beyond what yeah. I imagined it could be. And, and did, then did she sing the song all the way through. How did that? Go? Yes, and then we went back through it seven or eight times to change phrasing. Okay, and you coach her on the phrasing. Yes, as you do. And then, um, but when I hear something like that, I my immediate thought is. How can I? I gotta not screw this up. Uh huh. <laughs> Which it, I well, you had already done the orchestration, right? It was yes. finished. So you but knew you, you hadn't screwed that up, right? Well, it screwed up if the person singing it doesn't sound right inside that orchestration. Sure. It was this was a perfect for her voice and the way that I'd done the orchestration. I mean, her timing was amazing on that. There were like little pizzicato cello things that were going on, and she was just right on, right on the. And I put the pizzicatos in afterwards oh, based on her phrasing. Okay. That one little phrase. That one thing. Yeah. I did a stop yeah. and and followed her line, yeah. knowing when I heard her sing it, I went, "Oh, I need a break there, and I'm going to do it with pizzicato." Right. So it's funny because we're talking about what to me totally qualifies as what I would call a spiritual experience because it, it was a hundred percent fully invested in the activity that you're involved with you with your full heart and mind yes so that's what I mean by spiritual you can get there how you get there and you know you, you can meditate or whatever you do or chant to tune your in, instrument up but it's more about just hitting that spot where you're absolutely on the dot with what you're doing and with your full heart and mind so then you go well okay so this has two qualities. It has a creative quality that I'm just, I'm going to say it's brilliant. I mean, I, I've i heard a lot of what you do. That's really way up in the top echelons as far as I'm concerned. It's just beautiful and brilliant, Dave. And then second is um, you had a kind of um, resonant spiritual experience and now it's making a buck <laughs> because the sharing part to me inevitably connects with, I don't mean money when I say making a buck. I mean connecting with the flow yes. of, the, of the world. Well, what did I do when I finished it? The moment Aya left, yeah, exhausted and confused because she'd never had an experience like that, yeah. And I sent it to my wife yeah. immediately, and right. she wrote me back in three minutes and said, "This is beautiful." I started crying, yeah, because you because you, you had she you, got it, she got it. So I marketed it to Ava, yeah, to your wife, <laughs> yeah. Wow, but you know can't help it. And we're, in, we're entering an age in which it would be easy to put that up. And if the word got out on it, to have 100 million people hear that. Yes. Whether you could work out the financial remuneration or not, um, that possibility is there, right? Yeah. Or 37 people. Yeah. That would be a good yeah. start. 
So I, if I post something on Instagram uh, and I have a few followers and then it's funny, immediately there'll be a couple people respond. I go, wow, what? Are they sitting on Instagram? <laughs> well, and, and this whole idea of, of, you know, the podcast world, I mean, we're in sort of the shallow end of the pool on this, but people are getting turned on to by the millions to things just because one person likes it. Yes. You now have the power to kind of pass that through. Um, and um, It's a lot of traffic. I call it the bigger haystack with the same number of needles in it. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, when you that, that I think that moment of sharing is is a key. It feels like a lever, like uh -huh. a flip. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yes. I think that's our central theme tonight. Yes. Sharing. And, um, <clears throat> you know, you are somebody who's had your work shared with m millions and millions of people. Yeah, so I meet, I got arrested for carrying a knife. You did? Yeah, an unconcealed knife. Turns out it's a, <laughs> uh, against the law in New York City. And the top, it was in, you know, it's a bigger knife. It wasn't open, but it was just showing slightly outside of my pocket. Mm. And two policemen standing on the street said, what's that in your pocket? And I said, that's oh, a knife. I didn't know. Right. But I had a knife because I'd been accosted uh, outside of my studio because uh, mm -hmm. I always leave late. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, I'm completely unprotected. And these two huge people are trying to get money from me. And I was... So my gang friend sent me, FedEx sent me a knife. And I, I don't know how to use it, but anyway, it made <laughs> me feel something. So I said, oh, they said it's against the law. So I said, okay. So they had me walk to the police station, but they arrested me. And I called a friend of mine and said, um, I've been arrested for carrying uh, a weapon. And what should I do? He said, well, I need a, you need a criminal lawyer call this person. So I called him. He goes, yeah, listen, um, I don't think you're going to go to jail. Uh, the court you're at, I clerked for the judge. Let's meet on Thursday at four. And we talk about it. And I said, okay. So, and I get ready to hang up and he said, uh, just one more thing. I said, what? He goes, dude, fishbone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a punk rock lawyer. What? <laughs> <laughs> but so, and he knew that I'd drawn the fish. Yeah. So I'd made a connection to him mm -hmm. 18 years before when he was in junior high school. Mm -hmm. And that felt strange at first, but then I thought, this is, yeah, yeah. I gave him something. Right. So that was my band in high school. So I'd shared something that he loved. And, and he gave you a break because of that? Or? Oh, no. No. But he got me. He got me off. Uh huh. Yeah. So. Yeah. So sharing. Yeah, that's an example, especially when music goes out. Um. And music is particularly different than most things. I was talking to about a show that I'm uh, working on, a TV show that I wrote, and the idea was about a way of finding music. And somebody said, "Oh, it's like Anthony Bourdain," and uh. 
this other guy said, yeah, except Anthony Bourdain, you couldn't taste the food, but when you're doing music, you can actually hear it. <laughs> I thought, yes. Yeah. The other thing about music is interesting to me is it's the only product I know of where the ad is the product. Uh-huh. So it's a jingle for itself. Yeah. Jingle for itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes it. Yeah, how would you advertise the song? You play the song. <laughs> you play the song. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. So that working in sound and, and the fact that resonance is actually the physical quality of it has mm -hmm. always been so fascinating to me. And yeah. when you strike a chord, <laughs> another nice phrase, with someone, uh, you, 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 you do feel the connection. And when you're doing it live, yeah. um, you can tell. I mean, you know from playing when sure. everybody's into it. In the show that I'm writing about, uh, sound. It's a it's TV a, series, right? Yeah. Uh, that's the line is because I realized when I was mixing one day that we're all hearing one uninterrupted waveform our entire lives. Uh, each of us or as a whole? Each of us. Uh -huh. You're hearing, we're here in this room and you're hearing me and I'm hearing you. Uh, I hear a little sound in my head. I just heard the elevator go up. That's all part of the mix. Yeah, I've been hearing your chair squeaking. Yes. Uh -huh. It's uh, the experience that I had when I was mixing first and somebody had left the oscilloscope on and I saw the waveform and I realized it was a fingerprint of my mix and right. I soloed the bass and it was still this really complicated waveform. And then I soloed the voices. It was still complicated. And then I put everything back in. I couldn't tell the difference by looking at it and I realized uh, I had this this lightning bolt of, oh, shit, it's one sound. The totality of it, you mean? And that's all you ever hear your entire life. So the concept of it is uh, one long song. Yeah, well, like similarly, um, how many breaths do you think you take in a lifetime? Yeah. One. <laughs> and the first one's exhale? Uh-huh. And the last one's exhale. Yes. No, the first one's inhale. The first one's inhale. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then, ah. Uh, yeah. Well, so, now this is, you know, sort of making me think of, of meditation practice uh, or the experience of meditating, which is when you talked about the sound, for example, you could do a meditation just listening to the sound without trying to do any management or manipulation or a sort of narrative element at all. That's actually a very pure... Uh, awareness type of practice. You just that'd be hard to do. Um, for me, yeah, it it might be interesting to do for that reason because oh, yeah. you're not adding anything to it that's kind of um, uh, creative or you know constructed. You're you're dealing with the unconstructed dimension of both the sound and your own mind. Yes, the unconditional part of it. So there's uh, just to sit and bathe in a way, in in the arena of suchness, of experience that's just unfolding without your participation, without your attempt to try to turn it into something or, or turn it away from something. Or when the siren goes by and you go, oh, that's a tritone. Uh -huh. Or that's a dead person going to yeah. the hospital. With a tritone playing, with a tritone which is the most disinterval. Yeah. Couldn't they use a major third? It would be so much more uplifting. Well, the premise is that there's a pure realm of sense perceptions and Trungpa Rinpoche used to say this. He said, there are sights you've never seen. There are sounds you've never heard. There's dimensions to it. There's like a, a, a richness and a 
a multifaceted aspect to just the sense perception, sound, smell, taste, touch. So that's why on the shrine, sometimes they have like a, a, a mirror and a bowl of water, saffron water, and maybe some candy. It's just that you're actually worshiping the five sense perceptions. That's what's on the shrine. So could I ask you a question? Sure. You left one out. So sound, smell, taste, touch, si- sight. Sight. But I've always been reading that consciousness was a sixth. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting into a ripping good. Uh, yeah. So actually there's eight consciousnesses if you want to get into it from the classic point of view. And it may take us too far off, of course. But Well, I just wondered if yeah. you're also – those are pure realm also? Well, it's a, that's a really great question from a practice point of view because the sixth one is is the integration of the first five. It's like the central switchboard. So you, there is some element of coordinating them into some kind of sense. That's where the, you can sort of find shards of ego there because somebody's trying to pull something together so that it makes sense that the, the fire engine just went by and at the same time your chair is clicking well, there must be a me here that's actually experiencing that, yes. right? which is a, quite a leap, an assumption. And if you get into it, they say, well, that doesn't really mean there's a me there. Yes. It's just a, it's just a, a sequence of experiences. And the, the assumption of a central reference point assembling it is an assumption. So um, – and usually the, that's not really a big problem, but it gets thick in there. And central headquarters gets very dense and it develops all kinds of stories and paranoid trips and kind of like excuses and, you know, st- uh, stories of all kinds. So when you're starting to practice, you want to parse that out a little bit, thin that out a little bit. Well, we always want a narrative to explain. Yeah, and that doesn't necessarily – that usually can become a, a, a refuge for – negative emotions and things like that. Or just pure ignorance. Yeah, just dullness. The yeah. sun is a chariot with a guy in it. <laughs> okay, great. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> yeah, so in your, you're so close uh, to a realm of pure sense perceptions, really more than most musicians I know, Dave, you know, because you're playing with just very, very pure relationship to sound as part of your art form. And... Um, you know, when I heard that arrangement, with the string arrangement is like ethereal. It's like you feel like you're in ether. <laughs> and it has a beautiful, it's like sort of lands on the earth gracefully and on the water gracefully and a little bit of fire. But it has a quality of space that's very, very, um, when you listen to that, you, you feel like you could, you don't really need to uh, worry about your embodied situation. My life. <laughs> or my life either. Well, yeah. there's an interesting point in there that you made me think of is also the fact that, okay, I'm sitting there listening to Bartok and Prokofiev. The opening to Romeo and Juliet was, I felt like I'd absorbed a hundred years of music knowledge on that because of the counterpoint. And I went, oh, mm. okay, I apply that to everything I do for the rest of my life. So that was a recording of the London Symphony Orchestra. Um, Now, through sampling technology, over time, owning every sample library that was put out and now realizing which I'm going to use the pizzicatos from there and I'm going to use the sustained cellos 
from uh, the Vienna because they have a slight lift to them after the attack for this one mm. part that I'm able through the technology and the people that practiced, that can sit in the studio and make the recordings for the samples, that I'm able to put that together sitting on my own yeah, and create something that I'm, I'm resonating with and trying different things until I get it to the point that sounds like I want it to sound like. Right. Then that's an individual experience that wasn't possible 20 years ago. Well, so Dave, you, you know that I was involved with the development of that technology in its inception stage with New England Digital and the Synclavier. Yes. Uh, and so the people who are actually creating the cutting edge wave of what all this has become, of course, they're long gone in that respect, but they, they were there at the inception stage. And um, the the chief, uh, the, the um, head of the company and the chief hardware engineer I met at the Buddhist Meditation Center in Vermont. That's how I knew him. So wow. there was that kind of synchronicity. He was a, he was a Buddhist practitioner. Sid Alonso was his name. And he's a, a, a monk in France now. Wow. So he's um, – and I just only talk to him every once in a while. Uh, but he asked me in 1971 – well, a couple of things happened. One is we talked about – we projected the iteration of the digitization of this audio industry um, – that we went from from 80 to uh, 2000 was going to be the digitization of the supply side, which is the manu- you know, CAD CAM, the manufacturing of, of music. And then from 2000 to 2020 was going to be the digitization of the distribution side. Uh-huh. So we were saying that like, yeah, you know, wow. at the beginning of the thing. But Sid was you know, really a stone genius. And um, also he was an old-time fiddle player. It was kind of interesting. He was kind of a gruff guy in, in, in a way, an earthy guy. Um, it's amazing how many coders and digital people are musicians. Well, every in this company, everybody was a musician. Yes. And it was like we were inventing a new musical instrument. It was, it was like yes. being around when the harpsichord was invented or yeah. something like that. Later on, when the company grew, and this is sort of the business side, it had to get to the point where they had to bring in straight business people for marketing and manufacturing and stuff like that. But before that, everybody was a musician. Yes. But Sid asked me, and this is the point I was trying to get to, in, I guess it's around, yeah, 1980. He said, David, if I could get the music portaled right into your brain, <laughs> you know, he's only half kidding. You know, yeah, you, yeah, you know yeah. and now it's, we're only one third kidding. Yeah. He said, would it still be music? What would it be? If I could bypass these organs of perception and somehow create the experience at a kind of a con- level of consciousness, what would it be like? And I, I've been thinking about that ever since. <laughs> well, that's uh, there's a part in that in my show where uh, I built a model for the ear using a bass drum, three pieces of wood, a tube filled with electrostatic fluid, and the little con- when the electrostatic fluid is vibrated, it will light up some Christmas lights to show how it goes through your eardrum, through your three bones, through, and then you'd hit a big box and you'd watch it and you could actually see the latency. Mm. The reason I bring that up is because that particular apparatus is an instrument in its sense. It's a receiver that if you're going to do it straight into the brain, you would have a choice of any kind of apparatus that you could build. So we do hear 40,000 cycles. We respond to it. We could have something that goes into the brain that's from 15,000 up to forty. 
and that would be a different experience. Well, and w- when when I think about this possibility, I mean, you, you would know probably better than I that how close we are to actually doing this because I'm yes. sure it's inevitable. Yes. It's happening. It's yes. coming. When I think about it, I think, well, here's the closest analog I can think of. When you dream music, which I'm sure you must because – or do you? Yes. Yeah. So I've dreamed – you know, I'm working on this musical. I dreamed an entire song from the musical. Wow. And literally, it was complete. It was complete. And I woke up and simply, as far as I know, wrote it, you know, just transcribed it, wrote it down, and then recorded it. But I, did I compose that? I mean, what, who, and how, did, how could I hear it? I wasn't, there was no audio. So audio in a dream would be pretty close to what we're talking about. Yeah, and why right? it's the same as just pure consciousness. Yeah, and by the way, I would suggest that you say definitely you wrote it so that you could put yourself down for the publishing. (laughs) And making a buck, folks. (laughs) I have more of an experience of when I'm working on something, I feel like something woke up. Yeah. Or that there's a be a chord relationship or I'll hear, like when Aya started singing that track, uh, that... I had gone into a place that was not, I like to be, but I'm not there all the time Yeah, because there was a resonance going on. So it feels a little dreamlike uh, yeah. in, in waking, in a waking life. Yeah. So, you know, what's, in, again, we sort of tapped into the consciousnesses, but the um, capacity to connect with dream experiences is, is important at a certain point in practice because there's a practice called lucid dreaming. Yes. You know, dream yoga it's called. And if anybody's interested, you can read, there's a very good book on it by Tenzin Wangal Rinpoche. Um, the, the, um, the Tibetan practice of dream and sleep or some, something quite like that. And actually they go into the dream. They train for this. It's just like learning a skill. Uh-huh. So I've it, read about that. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and they train to recognize. Many people have had experiences with lucid dreaming, but they can't dial it in. You know, it will. But if you, if they have mastered this practice, they can. And um, you know, in the dream, one becomes aware that one is dreaming, which everybody's had some taste of that experience. Yes. But you can abide there. It's hard to stabilize that, and when you usually flicker through it when you're having regular dreams. And you're kind of lost and swirling around. You know, you don't know where you're going or how you got there or that kind of thing. But in this, now all of a sudden, you have this sort of same type of consciousness that you do when you're awake, which was, we can be somewhat intentional. You and I are going to go have dinner after this, right? You know, we're going to walk into the restaurant. We're going to sit down and suddenly we're going to be eating sushi you know, sushi or a hamburger or whatever. <laughs> I'm going for like, sushi. How do we get here? Yes. You know, we're here and then all of a sudden we're there. And of course, you could say, we walk molecule by molecule over there, but our experience of consciousness <laughs> is not really like that. It's jerky, it's discontinuous. Well, they study. Um, I was talking with um, Robert Thurman at oh, a, yeah. a long time ago, yeah. and he was talking about professor the social sciences because uh, he said, you know, when you call the Buddhist studies department at Columbia, I answer. Uh, but he said <laughs> social sciences they get. Um, they get at sabbaticals every three or four years and because they're so well-funded. And I said, by who? And he said, well, mostly the ad agencies. So I said, oh, right, they're studying things like priming. 
mm-hmm. and the, because they're going to prime you in the ad. And the funny line, uh, the funny description I read first of priming is you're at work, you're uh, arguing with your boss, uh, your chair is making noise, uh, you just, it's Thursday, I got to get, so you're on your way home, oh, I'm supposed to stop and get food at the grocery store, my wife's going to be upset because I promised, because we have these people coming over, and oh, look at that guy, he's so weird, and then you pull into your driveway, who drove home? <laughs> who drove home is a good title for something, right? Yes, <laughs> and that clicked, who, who drove home? Who drove home? <laughs> this primed guy. I, I get that all the time on my motorcycle. I'll go two blocks and all of a sudden I'll think, what did I just do yeah. without even thinking about it? Yeah. And then I think that's happening when I'm playing sometimes. Sure. Igor Stravinsky uh, was, uh, he, he's such a cool writer and he was talking about his inspiration and he said uh, that some of his best ideas happened when his finger slipped off F-sharp onto the F. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, good enough for Igor, good yeah, enough for right. me. Wow. <laughs> he also has a great quote, by the way, about uh, business. Uh, he said, uh, "He said I was contacted. I think I have this almost perfectly memorized. It's, uh, I was contacted by Walt Disney Studios in Hollywood, California, for use of my music in an animated feature. <laughs> I said, well, I have to think about it. Uh, they said, well, we can use it anyway, because at the time the copyrights were separated. Uh-huh. U.S. and Bern copyrights, Europe, U.S., they were going to use it anyway. Uh-huh. So he said, um, I was um, uh, invited for the uh, over for the present for the premiere. And I was going in and someone said, would you like a score? And I said, no, I, I know the music. Um, and I um, was, uh, don't have anything to say about the visual counterpart component of it. <laughs> That's funny. But I will say that the musical interpretation, um, all of the um, most difficult passages were omitted. And uh, I would say that the interpretation involved a serious misunderstanding. Um, as for the business, I was forced to accept it was some amount of $3,000 or something from right. my work, which was re- reduced to $1,500 after the percentages taken by numerous crapulous intermediaries. Uh, crapulous? What, you you memorize? You didn't hear him. There's no recording. No, it's stuff. in his book, but yeah. it was like— But you've glued it into your brain. Yeah. <laughs> numerous— Crapulous intermediaries. So I'm thinking, Stravinsky, he wrote this mind-blowing piece of music right of spring, and people were tearing the chairs up in the theater, and then over time, and then Disney's putting it into a thing, and then he gets nothing for it because of the copyright rules, and then they, he hated the interpretation of it. Wow. <laughs> there was a... There was a a lot of circles going on in that one. It pretty well describes the music business. <laughs> yes. Or any creative business where you're bringing yeah. your little thing forward. And Well, I use Charles Ives as an example because we talk about, um, you know, finding your offering. But then, as I said earlier, you know, determining is that your livelihood or is that you don't want to subject it to that. 
And Charles Ives was an example of, you know, he sold insurance. He yeah. was a successful insurance salesman, apparently. He, he was a good businessman, but he didn't want that pressure on his music. He didn't want to be in that situation. Which, yeah. Um, e. e. Cummings, too. Really? Yeah, he was, uh, uh, I think, an insurance executive. Yeah. Great poet. Oh, but used to, Buffalo Bill's defunct. Uh-huh. <laughs> used to ride a water smooth silver stallion. Yeah. So th- this um, this notion of creativity, of course, you know, you can't beat a horse too much. You talk about creativity too much, it sort of dries your mouth out um, in, in the wrong way. But when you tie it in with the notion of consciousness and does it exist uh, well, here's how we would talk about it in the Buddhist world. We'd say there's the Dharmakaya, which is the sort of pure realm of um, unconditional reality. And without it hasn't taken any shape or form at all yet. And before it comes all the way down to this kind of manifest level of sounds and instruments and you know people running around and recording studios and stuff, it goes through a realm called the Sambhogakaya, which is the body of bliss, the uh-huh. bliss level the uh, energy, the pure energy of it, which music is really Sambhogakaya um, level. It's it's all about sharing and communication. It has a tremendous um, sense of communication. Then it manifests as a physical person playing a violin, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so so uh, that would be kind of three kayas or three bodies of experience, the three bodies. And they're inseparable. That's an interesting sort of notion. That at first you'd say, well, my job as a spiritual practitioner is to get past the body, right? Get past all the sort of sense of experience, of any kind of experience, whether it's blissful or not, and get into this kind of void realm. And that's actually been the way some people have gone about it, but that's not the point. The yes. point is that in higher oh, level, they're considered inseparable, those three kayas. Uh-huh. And there's another kaya called Svabhavaka kaya that is the integration or the inseparability of those three. Uh-huh. So we are, you know, in formless realm, we're in bliss communication and sort of uh, energetic realm, and we're, you know, physical manifestation. Eating sushi. Eating sushi. Well, you know, that makes me think of something I thought of that struck me like a lightning bolt. Um, I'm, I wanted to recreate it in the sound show. I was in um, in. Tokyo at Budokan when Paul was performing there and it was a recreate it was not a recreation it was you that Beatles playing Budokan was a big deal mm. they'd never had music there before oh. and it was a martial arts center and it, I, someone told me there that uh the guy who ran it said if they let him play that he would commit harikiri or pronounce it wrong wow. and uh, they played and the guy didn't do it so that was pretty shameful but maybe I'm, he liked the music. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, these guys are good, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do they have any records? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm watching the show. I'm at the sound booth. I'm working. Yeah. And were you mixing the show? Or? No, I was recording. Recording. Okay. To mix mm-hmm. the the house mixer, and I was uh, supervising the the recording for later for okay. the record uh, for the TV show. So. I'm seeing this huge thing of people flown in all over the world. There's a hundred person crew, this massive thing, five year old kids singing every song, people cheering, beautiful uh, presentation, the years, decades of energy to come to that point. And I'm watching this world encompassing 
energy all yeah. wrapped up together. And then it dissolves into emptiness. Yes. One second after the sound wave. <laughs> yeah. Second after second after second. One long song. <laughs> Dave, <laughs> I think that's a good place to end. Okay. That's... Uh, it's been such a treasure to talk to you this way. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You too. I I wasn't I this was cool. I didn't know it was gonna be cool like this. Thank yeah. you. Okay. All right, everybody. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bye bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.